Gateway, so good to be here with you as we continue to worship through the Word. And today we continue in our series in the Gospel according to Mark as we're with Jesus in one of the harder scenes that we encounter in the Scriptures, I dare say the New Testament across the board. Um, And we also are in the season of Lent. And so just as a little announcement, housekeeping, I suppose, I just invite you to join in with us. You see, as a community, we're linking up our bread readings, which as it happens are back in the gospel according to Mark through the season of Lent. And we're matching those up with this season of Lent. And we're doing this movement of relinquishing and receiving, which is itself at the core of Lent, to join in solidarity with Jesus as he's preparing himself, being prepared by the Spirit in the wilderness. And so we join in solidarity with Jesus there, relinquishing a good thing to receive the better who is Jesus himself. And so if you want to join along with us in that, you can go to thegatewaychurch.com slash Lent. And you can uh, see that really it's 40 days is what we're kind of walking through together, 40 days of prayer and fasting. So I just want to invite you into that. And before we get into this, let me just pray and we'll get after it. So Jesus, we ask in your powerful name, the name above all names, that you come, that you are present to us, and that you help us through the power of your spirit and your living word to see you and the love of the Father more clearly. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 14 on the docket for today. Streaking, the challenge of following a crossbound Messiah and the Gethsemane prayer. Unless your minds run wild, yeah, that totally was a streaking joke. I'm loving it right now. So unless your, your, uh, your minds run wild, uh, we'll just start with the streaking. We're going to work our way back to the Gethsemane prayer. So go with me to the end of our teaching text. Our teaching text today is Mark 14, 26 to 52. So go with me to the end. In verse 51 of chapter 14, we read this. And a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So a little context to start. This is the final picture that Mark gives us before Jesus is given into the hands of men. And I don't know how it strikes you to find streaking in the Bible. There is, of course, stranger things still in the scriptures. And yet the appropriate question is like, what? Why? Why is this the final picture that Mark gives us before Jesus is handed over? The moment where Jesus moves from being the active character to a passive character. Why is this here? That's a good question. And so to make sense of this, uh, I want you to come back with me a little bit further to Mark chapter 10. Verses 23 to 29, we encounter an episode that helps us make sense of this. In verse 23, we read this. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So this is just after Jesus has told a person who's come to him saying, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And to this very specific person, he says, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. But that person goes away sad because they had great riches. Then Jesus drops this line, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed and said to each other, well, who who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up and pay attention to this. We have left everything to follow you. To which Jesus responds, I tell you, no one has left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. See, Peter says, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. We have no encumberments. Like there's nothing here, nothing here tying us to this present age. In other words, of course the kingdom of God is ours, Jesus. What is this you're talking about? Camels and eyes of needles? Like what, what is this? We've left everything. But that no-name disciple, that no-name follower of Jesus tells another story. You see, he seems to tell the true story of the disciples. That is, the call of self-preservation is stronger than the call of Jesus. Peter's right at one level. They will leave everything. Not to follow Jesus, but to flee from Jesus. For Jesus is cross-bound. See, the disciples, for sure, they want the kingdom of God. And that that is a good desire. It is a healthy ambition to desire the kingdom. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. See, go there. But they don't want a crossbound king. This is the challenge of following Jesus, is it not? So to see this all come apart... Go back with me now to Mark 14 and verse 26, we read, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So just recall that for the last weeks, if not months, Jesus has been trying through word and deed to convince his disciples, that he will be handed over to death. He said things like, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Pretty explicit. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And, you know, when that claim isn't met with rebukes from Peter, of course, or confusion or just downright, like, dismissal, Jesus turns those words into an action. He turns them into a deed. And to do that, he turns to a meal. A meal that we know as the Last Supper, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And Jesus takes this richly symbolic meal and he gathers up all those symbols and he points them back at himself so that the disciples can make sense of his coming death. So that they can see that Jesus is indeed at the center of God's redeeming story. He is God's agent of reconciliation. 
This is who he is. But apparently something's still not clicking for the disciples because after they share a meal, they sing a hymn, then they start to move away from that place. Jesus says that they will still abandon him. And just notice that for Jesus, this, this isn't a surprise. We actually see this as he quotes this obscure line from the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And rightfully so, like the question is, what? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We see Jesus is living into and out of his story. Remember, Jesus sees himself as God's redemptive agent. This is the figure through whom the kingdom of God would come to bear on earth as it is in heaven. And yet this figure who came to be known as the new David or the Messiah among the prophets, this figure elicits suspicion from the prophet Zechariah. And if you just want to like go and read Zechariah, it is a beautifully alarming book. I mean, it's dreams and visions and there's women with stork wings carrying other women in a basket. I mean, it's like, it's hard to get our minds around. See, for Zechariah, he, he is retelling the story of Israel in part through these visions and dreams. And so for our Western modern eyes, it can be kind of odd to take this in. If you're going to do this, I would suggest um, going to the Bible Project and just watching their little introduction video because <laughs> it'll help organize what seems like a chaotic book. But in this, Zechariah is pointing us to Israel's story. And when Jesus draws on this storyline, he's drawing on the storyline that's rooted in rebellion and rejection. Just consider the Exodus account. This is where God delivers his people from Egypt in slavery. He brings them into safety and then binds himself to the people as a groom to a bride. And then on the wedding night, the bride goes out and commits adultery. We can read about this in the Exodus account. This is the story of the golden calf. And right in that space, Jesus is tapping into this story because he knows, he knows the propensity. He knows the tendency of the sheep to scatter. And yet he's trying to share that even there, it's not the end. Elsewhere in the gospels, in the gospel according to John, John 10 specifically, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that that good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep but it really seems like the disciples aren't listening. He says, I'm gonna lay down my life, but that's not the end. I will rise. But it, clearly they're not listening because Peter jumps in in verse 29 to declare this, even if all fall away, I will not. You can just picture the, the chest thumping, the bravado of Peter in this moment. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Again, Peter emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples say the same thing. And I, I imagine that for Peter, those words are sincere. I imagine they're as sincere as our words when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. See, I don't, I don't know if you've ever considered what you would do in a moment like Peter will find himself in. But for Peter, his actions 
will disown his own words. His actions will betray his words. But before we get to that point, Mark actually gives us a break in this story. He allows us to digest all that's happened in the meal and this moment of abandonment. And we get this in verse 32 where we read, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Just stop right there for a moment. This, This place, you see, they're coming down from the Mount of Olives. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives goes down into a valley and up to the Temple Mount where today the Dome of the Rock sits. And these ancient walls that are still there today, you would see this dip down. And there in the middle is the Kidron Valley. And nestled in that is a, is a garden, an olive grove. And Gethsemane, Gatshamane, is a place, it's the oil press. And there where the oil is pressed out, Jesus himself is being pressed out. So Mark brings us to this place to slow down, to see Jesus in a new way. And in this place, Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He says this, my my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. See, up until this point, Jesus has been like a rock. We've seen Jesus talk about his death. I mean, we even just saw him enact his death symbolically through a meal, which is pretty remarkable. But here, This is the first time where we witness Jesus buckle under the weight of his impending death. He falls apart. And I don't don't know if you can recall the first time you saw a parent, a guardian, a coach, like the, the person who helped you make sense of the world, the person who held you secure in that place. Like, I don't know if you can recall the first time you saw that person break, crying in a fetal position, helpless. See, for so many, like, that is a bizarre moment. And rightfully so, there's not really a script for that moment. All there is is a life that's being reshaped and a story to tell. Of course, there is so much more, but this is one of those moments. Because here we find Jesus the one who literally, the scriptures say, holds all things together. Who, who, the, the one who secures and makes sense of our world. We find this one, this Jesus, undone in the garden. He knows that his life will be laid down. And all he wants is for his disciples, for those closest to him, to stay awake, to keep watch which essentially means pray, be attentive. He's he's essentially saying, I am falling apart, pray for me. And then we read this in verse 35, he's going on a little further. He fell to the ground and prayed. The the, the picture is that the weight of the anxiety and the angst of the forthcoming moments are bearing down, they are pressing him out. And he falls under the weight of that that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
Just stop right there. Do you notice who Jesus sees in this moment? Who he comes to? He comes to his father and he says, everything is possible for you. And then the next thing he says is, take it. I don't want it. The famous lines follow, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the Gethsemane prayer. And what I want us to do is I just want us to bookmark this right here because I want us to finish here and, and, and to move through this with Jesus to be seen by and to see him afresh. In the meantime, however, I want us to continue to see the challenge of following this crossbound Messiah. And so with that bookmarked, go with me to verse 37. Jesus prays this prayer and then he, he returns to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said, Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? I love the King James. Could you not tarry for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. It's like all that boasting all that bravado is at risk of being exposed as the thin and fickle claim that it is. If Peter does not lean into dependence on the Father in prayer. To Peter just said, if all fall away, Jesus, I will not. I've got your back, Jesus. I'll die with you, Jesus. All the disciples, they say the same thing. So does Peter think he can hold himself secure? Verse 39, I guess we'll see. Once more, Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. Take it, take the cup. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say. Have you ever had that moment? It's, it's that moment where you are found out. It's not necessarily sin, but like somebody asks you to do a thing or not to do a thing and you do that thing or you don't do that thing. And it's like words, words have no effect in that matter. Words have no relevance in that thing. So you stand speechless. And what's interesting is that that lack of dependence on God in prayer, it's not a new thing. This is actually an evil, like, this is the trajectory of the disciples in the gospel according to Mark. We see this in a scene in Mark 9 where Jesus is coming down from this powerful moment with Peter, James, and John. It's this moment of the transfiguration, the moment where the father speaks identity again over Jesus. This is my beloved son. And he tells Jesus's closest people, Peter, Peter James, and John, he says, listen to him with the implications being um, that they've not been listening to him. So the father affirms that and then they calm down only to encounter Jesus's other disciples unable to do what Jesus has commissioned them to do, to care for people. And specifically in this case, to cast out an unclean spirit. And they're unable to do it. So Jesus being Jesus addresses the moment, does the thing that they were unable to do. And then later on, the disciples turn to him and they ask, why were we unable to cast him out? And Jesus says, for this kind only comes out with prayer. And this is less an assessment of a certain like class of demons or like a prayer technique and more about dependence on God. So the question arises, will they 
hold themselves secure? Do, do we think that we could do that? See, because prayer is meant to bring us to the place of dependence on the Father, and the reality is, is that our life with Jesus is sustained by the life of Jesus. That, that is, it's the empowering presence of Jesus with, in, and through us. When we lose sight of that reality, we lose sight of Jesus and we run the risk of trying to hold ourselves secure. We see that impulse in our passage for sure. Like in the hour of Jesus' greatest need, his innermost circle is sleeping. Jesus is having a legitimate panic attack. In other gospels, it's said that Jesus begins to sweat blood. This is a condition when anxiety is so intense. This is recorded by journalists who are with soldiers in wartime before or after battle, that anxiety is so intense, like the capillaries in your skin start bursting and you start sweating through your pores, blood, droplets of blood, because it's just too intense. Jesus is having a legitimate panic attack, grieved to the point of death, and the those who are closest to him are asleep. And the irony is that though they are physically close, they are absent in every substantive way. And some of you right now are listening and you're like, I know this. I, I know what that feels like. I know what it is to be going through what St. John of the Cross would call the dark night of the soul. And for all those who are supposed to be close to me to be far, far away. And how do we make sense of this? Do we talk about the peril of the cross and then maybe riff on the disciples' subconscious movement away from Jesus? I suppose we could. At the end of the day, it would just be conjecture. So how do we make sense of this? I think we see more clearly than ever what it is to be the truly human one. We make sense of this by looking at Jesus. See, in this scene, we actually encounter what it is to be truly human. And we see it in Jesus, that is to say, we, we see it in the one who knows the full extent of anxiety, of abandonment, of desertion, the, the place where it feels like God is more absent than present. And in this place, we make sense of this whole scene by recognizing that this is life, this is the human experience, and Jesus knows it to its worst and to its best. But right here, we can say that Jesus sees us when we feel that same sense of anxiety and abandonment, the sorrow that leads to death, we can say that he sees us because he's been there too. He knows what it feels like to imagine death. So I know that for families and our community, that this is real. And we ask, what in the world is this doing in our, in our family? As, as, as though somehow we are uniquely protected. It's a real question. I don't mean to put it aside. And yet what we find in Jesus is the gift of God's love in this very, very odd scene. 
See, I think with Jesus, we, we can actually say that even if everyone fails, if it feels like utter desolation, that Jesus knows what it is to be in that place and that he is there with us. And the beautiful thing is that we are there with him too. And when everybody else may, may abandon and leave and desert, Jesus will not because his resolve is secured in prayer. In verse 41, we read that returning a third time, he says, are you still sleeping? We're going to see the resolve of Jesus here. Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And all of a sudden, in these, these couple verses, we see Jesus moving in again to the place of the cross. How does he do this? We'll come back to that. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the, the elders, essentially the Sanhedrin, the ruling group in Jerusalem. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them because it's the middle of the night, it's dark, they don't have street lights going on. So, this is the signal. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Judas, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. So, don't be thrown off by the kiss here because this is the typical greeting of welcome and hospitality in Jesus' culture. Rather, notice the irony See, the kiss is not a sign of welcome. It's a sign of betrayal. Jesus and his followers are, are a social body. Those, those who follow in the wake of Jesus, we are to be a social body of welcoming, a community defined by hospitality to receive any and all because we ourselves have been received as any and all. And the sign of welcoming it's the sign of betrayal. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And immediately Jesus meets these actions with these words. And I think there's a couple things going on. He says, am I leading a rebellion? And in that moment, in those couple of words, I, I think Jesus is looking to the one who strikes the servant of the high priest. Am I leading a rebellion? And then turns to the crowd. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You know, love your enemy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of your muchness and love your neighbors yourself. I'm that guy. And you didn't arrest me then, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So it's so interesting. Mark doesn't even address the drawn sword. Instead, he draws us to Jesus who calls out the crowd. And, and this is the irony of this. Like we love a good crowd. I mean, if I'm honest with you, if I were to know that there were thousands of people on the other side of this camera, like it would do, it would, it probably do some pretty sinister things in my heart, like mess with my motivations, desires, and things like that, because we love a good crowd. And so I'm not, in one sense, that's fine. It's neutral in some sense. And in another, Mark cautions us here. 
because the crowd is fickle. See, one moment they treat Jesus like a conquering king who he refuses to be. If you remember, they treat him as though he's riding in on a stallion, but he comes in on a donkey. (laughs) And when he's not who they want him to be, the next moment they turn on him like he's a terrorist. Clubs, swords, he's a threat to them. He's been there every day in the temple. And then note that line again at verse 49. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. There it is again. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Because the cross is the way and the Jesus is the cross-bound Messiah. And in the face of the cross, verse 50 pierces all the more and everyone deserted him and fled. Sometimes I like to think that I wouldn't have done so. But all those heartfelt pledges of loyalty are nothing but flimsy oaths at this point because the call of self-preservation was stronger than the call of Jesus. And if we didn't get the point, Mark is here for the win, verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. See, the disciples will leave everything, but not to follow, but to flee from Jesus. For Jesus is the cross-bound king. They want the kingdom, but they don't want a cross-bound king. They don't want a cross-bound king who says things like this in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay my life down. Did you hear that? Jesus does this, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So how does Jesus get here? How does Jesus find himself so secure in the Father's love that he's willing to lay down his life? And for this, I wanna invite us into the Gethsemane prayer as we close. So go back with me to verse 35. We read this, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Really through the work of of John Mike Comer, I've I've come to understand this prayer as the Gethsemane prayer. This is the prayer where Jesus meets us and where we meet him in the crucible of all of life's travesties. In a world that is wrestling with COVID and economic fallout and death and divorce, all of the emotional pain that comes with that, Jesus is here to offer us a place where that emotional pain can be transformed into a place of remembrance for his followers. So Jesus's pain is itself a window into ourselves if we would look. And more so, Jesus's pain is a place where we could see how to move through our own with one another and with God. So to be clear, Jesus, he's not offering up. This is super clear. He is feeling sorrow for to the point of death. He's like prostrate on the ground and he's crying out. So Jesus isn't like, here's four steps to a better life of prayer. No, like this is our broken Messiah before the Father asking for another way. 
He's not offering up a technique to yield different results. Rather, prayer, prayer of all sorts, contemplative prayer, breath prayer, intercession, that is a place to behold and to be held by God. It's a place of opening before God. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you don't know what to pray. (laughs) Maybe this is like every moment of every day for you. Either because the season you're in, it feels prayer phobic like oil is to water or because there's a decision, a desire, an opportunity that lays in front of you that you simply do not know how to handle. This is where we can learn from Jesus. You see, first Jesus notices, names, and then attends to his feelings in a place of trust. He notices, names, and attends to his feelings in a place of trust. For Jesus, this is the admission that his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. It's a truth that he offers up with no qualifications, no internal pep talk, no reframing mantra. He just lets his soul be bare. And he does so before those who are closest to him. You see, it's it's remarkable at the rate at which loneliness rises in our country, around the world. It's remarkable the rate at which places of trust diminish. It's like loneliness is going up while places of trust are going down. That is to say, we have less friends and we are more isolated and more aware of our isolation than we've ever been before. And loneliness isn't a monolith. It looks different. There can be people who are surrounded, surrounded by companions and people but have no confidants. You yourself, you can go and you can look at the stats. There's a great article in the Harvard Magazine on loneliness pandemic, loneliness epidemic. That's not my point here. My point is that from Jesus, we actually see the need for thick relational trust, like like thick webs of relational trust where we are bound to God and one another. See, Jesus knows his closest friends will abandon him, but there, there he still bears his soul because there's always risk in relationship. I just want to put this forward. Like my prayer for our community is that we might be a place where we could bear our souls to one another. And I know that this isn't going to take place from a stage. This isn't going to take place in big spaces per se, but interpersonally. And so this requires us to come out and actually move toward one another. And I know it is risky, and I know that the, like, the tone of our community is, oh, we're a, bit, a little bit more introverted. I'm certainly not. Uh, but overall, I'm a little bit more introverted. I don't know. I, like, learn from Jesus here. See, the church is a body. It's a family. So whether you are saying, I've been burned by the church in the past, I'm not saying that's irrelevant. I'm just saying, that according to Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, you are actually not alone. You are a brother or a sister to me in Christ and vice versa. Perhaps we can be the place of trust where we actually, without, without barrier, bear those feelings. You see, Jesus doesn't stop here. He, 
He notices, he names, and he attends to his feelings, and then he goes deeper to his desires. And hear his words again, if it is possible, may this hour pass from me. Take this cup from me, is what Jesus says. And there is, of course, like a density of meaning around this imagery of the cup. But at a basic level, the cup is a Hebrew idiom for your lot in life. Typically, we think of the cup with these negative connotations, but that's not always the case. I mean, you got Psalm 23 saying, my cup runs over. So it's both heavy and weighty and beautiful and joyful. They go together. The idea is that your cup is a part of your life, the the cross you bear, if you will. And this can be something you have no control over, an, an illness, an incident that occurred in the course of your life that changed the entire way you live in the world. And other times, it's something that you have a say in. If you're at work and that work is challenging, you might ask, do I stay in this role? Do I stay in this role during the season? Or perhaps it's just a challenging season. And so you ask, do I stay in this marriage? Do I stay in this community? Despite all the challenges and the disagreements and all of these things, like in all of these things and more, we have a say. And if you're anything like me, like if there's anything distasteful in my cup, my impulse, like almost my reflex is to throw the cup out. (laughs) Like I just want a brand new cup, Jesus. Let's just, so I'm totally down. Like take this cup from me. I'm like, Jesus knows me here. But consider Jesus. He, He wrestles. Like Jesus flinches at the cross. See, this is the man who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says this and he says, take it. Those two things can exist in tension with one another. It's not either or. Jesus flinches at the cross and do you see, like Jesus has a choice of whether or not to go to the cross. Just let that sink in. See, this moment with all of its unsettling complexity, it appears to be Jesus asking the Father for another cup, a way out, another way for renewal to break out in God's good world. Like he wants to be unbound from the cross. Three times he moves in this prayer and comes out the other side with resolve. What is that? There's no posturing with Jesus. Do you notice that when he bears his desires before the Father, there's there's no filter, there's no guilt over his desire. He just lays it out there. And just take a moment with me and consider your own desires, good, bad, and different. How do you treat them? If you're if you're like me, like I've uh, my imagination around desires has really been cultivated by the evangelical church. So I'm suspicious of my desires rather than receiving them as a good gift from God, knowing that I have the propensity to turn in on myself. That's called sin. Um, I'm immediately suspicious and I treat my desires as guilty until proven innocent. You know what I mean? See, with Jesus, he's not mastered by his desires. He's, He's not living according to their whims. He's also not afraid of his desires which is what I just described. No, he lays them before the Father. And so too can we. We can hand our desires over to God. 
Like we, we know when they're contrary to the will of God. We know when they're off. And still there, we can hand them over. And you see, I think this is the place then where we finally see this movement of Jesus bearing his feelings to those in trust. He, he is giving his desires over to God. And then we see him entrust himself fully into God's care. And it's these words, not my will, but your will be done. Comer points out how, how like so often we skip the noticing, the naming, the attending, we skip over our desires and we just go right to this yielding. And when we do this, we, we don't honor the emotional process and we don't see how God is at work. You see, I, this little prayer, not my will, but your will be done, can be a beautiful prayer. It can be words that we pray, but so often, let's take, for example, we're praying for a friend who has cancer and we want her to be healed. That's the prayer. That is God's will. God's will is for her to be completely restored. But what we so often do, and I think it's just like a reflex, like a cultural reflex, is that we just go, Lord, heal her, but not what I will, but your will be done. It's like, we just prayed God's will. So there we entrust ourselves. So I know um, that can be a bit unsettling to consider. And so I just want to invite you into this. As we, as we actually close, <laughs> I, I want my prayer to actually be our prayer. I just want to guide us as a community into the Gethsemane prayer. To receive the call of Jesus. To actually move with our cross-bound king to the cross. To just give ourselves over to him in that space. To entrust ourselves to Jesus. Come what will to die to that place of self-preservation. And if we're not there yet, to at least notice it and name it. So if you will, just come to a place of quiet before God. If you're multitasking right now, I just invite you, um, take the next few moments. And in this place, let God be your place of trust. Take this next moment to just tell him how you feel. Good, bad, indifferent. And now, Offer God your desires. No need to edit them. Just give them over just as they are. You, again, you know the ones that are opposed to God. And still, to be able to give them over. Letting him deal with them. you to entrust yourself to God. Perhaps your prayer goes something like this. 
God, I don't know how to entrust myself to you, but I see Jesus do it. And I want to be the type of person who entrusts myself to you. Here I am. Here I am. Amen. May the love of the Father hold you secure this day. Grace.